I want you to do something for me. I want you to imagine an old shack. And to help you imagine it, I'll, I'll show you one here. I want you to, to look at that shack. And at one time, years and years ago, this shack was presumably a home. A home for maybe a frontier family trying to make a go of it out on the edge of the frontier where the wilderness meets the frontier. And it was a comfortable home. You know, it kept their family safe, kept them well and, and rested. But over time, as you, as you look at this shack, you can just imagine that over time, the weather begins to have its way with this shack. The, the wood on the outside begins to fade and weather and peel. The roof begins to leak. You can imagine now the, the windows are out and so birds are, are nesting in the rafters of this little house. And, and, and if you were to you know, get a running start, it almost looks like you could knock that thing over. And it's kind of interesting to think about that at what was at one time, you know, this place of security and safety has now turned into something wild. In some ways, it's like wilderness is just reclaiming its territory. I want you to have that shack in mind as we look at our text for today, Luke 3, chapter 1. Not because there's a shack in this text, but there is the wilderness in this text, and we're going to talk about that today. This is Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Traconitus, and Lysanchus, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Notice that, in the wilderness there. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. There it is again. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation in the wilderness. You notice it twice in this text. All right, do you still have that shack? In mind, can you still see it? Still see that shack I showed you? I think a shack is a really helpful metaphor for what we're going to try to understand today. And that is that we tend to think about wilderness as a place out in the wild. But really, wilderness isn't so much a place as a force. Wilderness is this force that is always working to reclaim territory that it loses, you know, places of civilization, places of structure and stability. I just go out? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch mics here. Is that cool? Can we switch mics? Okay. Have I been going out the whole time? I hope not. Sure. There we go. There we go. All right, think about that shack. I think a shack is a really helpful metaphor here because in this shack, as you're seeing what I'm describing, right? You have got this place that was at one time stable, secure, safe. And over time, you can just see it in that shack that wilderness has reclaimed it. You know, in fact, if we were to go back 100 years and put a time-lapse camera out by that shack where that family was still living and enjoying life, and we were to just watch it over the years, what we would be watching as it deteriorated is the slow march of wilderness, right? And wilderness doesn't always march slowly. I uh, was reminded of this when we were watching the news about the fires in California the last few weeks. So there's some families here at Highland who've got family and friends in California that lost so much. 
In fact, Lindsay's uncle has owned an RV and camper dealership in Paradise, California for years. And when the fire started coming in, he grabbed his dogs and some artwork and he loaded up one of those campers and he took off. He made it to safety. He had about 40 campers on his little lot and they all burned to the ground. All burned to the ground. He's still not sure what he's going to do. And in a wildfire, I mean, you hear it in the word, wildfire. What we're seeing there is, is not the slow advance of wilderness, but it's rapid retaking of what it thinks belongs to it. I just finished this book called The River of Doubt. Has anybody read The River of Doubt? Anybody in here? It's about Teddy Roosevelt, American president. And his story is really fascinating. He was, he was president, and uh, he lost. He then lost the 1912 election. And he was devastated. He was humiliated by losing that election. You know, Teddy Roosevelt was the one who carried a big stick. Remember that? So losing an election was humiliating to him. So he tries to figure out what he's going to do now to prove himself, his value to the world. And so he doesn't, you know, like some presidents do, you know, join a nonprofit or write a book or, or you know, start a presidential library. What Teddy Roosevelt decides to do is to explore an uncharted Amazonian river okay, that's never been mapped. It's kind of hard to imagine like any current presidents, modern-day presidents doing that, right? But that's what Teddy Roosevelt does. He takes off with his crew of guys down to this uncharted Amazonian river deep into the Amazon. And the further they go down this river, the, the jungle just begins to bite back, take bikes, bites out of his party. Their canoe, it gets overturned in rapids. It's got all their food supplies and gunpowder, and it washes down the river. Insects are constantly tormenting them. They all get these jungle diseases. At one point, Roosevelt, who's 50 pounds lighter by the end of the trip, at one point he just leans against a tree and he begs the party to leave him, just to leave him to die in the Amazon. They do eventually leave the river, but what I couldn't shake in reading this story about Teddy Roosevelt was that if if Roosevelt's the hero of the story, the villain is not a person, the villain is the, the jungle itself. It's like the jungle is alive, and in this case, it is squeezing the life out of a president of the United States of America. And thing is, you know, you don't have to visit a shack, you don't have to go to the Amazon to see this in, in, at play, right? The wild is always trying to reclaim its space in our lives. A woman after first service came up to me, she lost her husband not long ago. She came up to me, she wrapped her arms around me, she put her face on my chest, and she said, Eric, I am in the wilderness right now. And isn't that true for so many of us? You know, we spend our lives building these walls and spaces of security around us to keep us safe and stable. And it seems like no matter what we do, the wilderness is just spilling over those walls. It's just invading our lives, and we just can't feel safe. It's just always making us vulnerable. It's stripping us bare. Wilderness is, is all around us. And the thing about wilderness is it just invites itself into our lives. We don't ask it to come. Biblically, that's about right. Okay, that's true biblically as well. So when you look at the biblical account, wilderness actually is a character in almost every part of the Bible. Wilderness is where demons roam. When Jesus encounters people who are enslaved by demons, he encounters them where? In the wilderness. Uh, In the wilderness is where Jesus is tempted by Satan. Uh, In the wilderness is where bandits come upon you, beat you, leave you for dead, and you're lucky if a Samaritan comes along. I mean, that danger lurks out in the wilderness. Paul is shipwrecked in the wilderness. Israel wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. So wilderness is a character in almost every part of the Bible. So when we read our Bibles, what we find is that the Bible 
really understands the human condition, that we are all facing this force of chaos that's trying to make its way into our life. And the Bible describes that really well in talking about the wilderness. Thing is, even in the moment the Bible gets that right, what we tend to do is to look elsewhere from our Bibles for answers on how to fix it or what to do with it. In fact, we tend to look to people, and the people we look to are the same kind of people that are listed at the beginning of this passage. Look again there at the very beginning, Luke 3, 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanthius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. All right, first thing I want you to notice about this, maybe the most important takeaway of the day, there in that fourth line, last word, Abilene. So uh, apparently Abilene is, is biblical. But as hard as I have looked, I have not found Circe anywhere in here. And, you know, as Memphians, we can all certainly agree that Nashville is certainly not biblical. But if you were to ask someone from Nashville, they are convinced it is, right? They're convinced it is. All right, maybe not the most important thing to take away. Here, here's, here's actually the first thing I want you to notice about these, all these guys in this passage. They are all dead, right? They're all dead, dead, dead. And the word of God concerning this one who is to come that John the Baptist gets in the wilderness and speaks in the wilderness is about one that we believe is still alive, right? First of all, okay. But secondly, isn't it so true that the people that we look to to fix the problems of our world are exactly these kind of people, right? The power players, in this case, the politicians, people with the power to to make laws and rules and wage wars. That's kind of the thing about it. You know, the people that we look to to decrease the wilderness in our lives often end up making more of it in the process. Uh, doesn't that explain so much what's going on in our world? You know, think about it politically for a second. It doesn't matter what par- party is in power. We place all of our hopes and dreams for this better world onto them. And inevitably, what happens? We get disappointed. And the pendulum swings to another party, and they're in power for four or eight years. And we place all our hopes on them, and then we get disappointed. And, and it swings back, and it just goes like this and this and this. Well, why is that happening? Well, ask yourself this. What is it I really want them to do? We all have various policies that we care about and that are important, and absolutely those things matter. But ultimately, if we were to dig really deep, I think what all of us really want them to do is to eliminate the wilderness. We want them to stop everything that's chaotic about our lives. We want them to fix it. And we're not, you know, when we say eliminate the wilderness, we're not talking about like a pipeline in Alaska. We're talking about all that chaos in our lives that we want solved. And no person could do that. You know, Caesar couldn't do that. Teddy Roosevelt couldn't even get the mosquitoes to stop biting him. You know, he had diseases the rest of his life that he picked up in the Amazon. And we place all our hopes on guys like this. And so I think it's in that moment that when you're, when you're disappointed in the world, you're disappointed in the power players in the world, that you do return to Scripture And you return, and what you hope you find there is somebody who doesn't have the same limitations these guys have. Remember, they're dead. And you want somebody who not only is living, but you want somebody 
who recognizes the wilderness in your life for what it is and has the power to obliterate it. You want somebody who comes in and absolutely destroys it, makes it nothing, squashes it. You want that God, like we talked about last week, who is so much greater and cosmic and universal in scale for whom the things of this earth are nothing. That's what Israel wants. This is a a Christmas text. That's why we're thinking about it. And what Israel wants is they await the coming of the Messiah. Is this Messiah who's going to deal once and for all with wilderness. They've got this tortured relationship with wilderness, Israel does. Um, Adam and Eve, the first sin, they're sent from the garden into the wilderness. Israel wanders for 40 years in the wilderness. Israel is exiled repeatedly from the promised land into the wilderness. And at this point, they're under the thumb of Rome as we arrive in the scene in Luke 3 under guys like guys in this passage under their thumb. And that feels wild to them because they don't have any control over some of the basic day-to-day things about their life. What they want is that control back. What they long for is a God, that same God who parted the Red Sea, right? The God who has this, this power to push back all the wild to where it belongs, right? To keep it at bay. That's what they want. In fact, I bet that's what John the Baptist in this passage wants. That guy has lived in the wilderness his whole life, eating locusts and honey, wearing camel's hair, right? He's ready for a change, You know, he's ready for a change. Wouldn't you be? That's been your whole life. And so they want this God, and we want this God. As we experience that wild in our lives, who is beyond it and who destroys it. We want a God who is as tired of wilderness as we are. Okay. Only if you look at this passage, that's not what we get. What we get is not a God who comes destroying wilderness. We get this God who comes, puts himself himself smack dab in the middle of it, and begins to speak. So look here. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word of God, the speech of God, came to John in the wilderness. All right, pause for a moment and consider this. What I want you to consider this morning. Those of us who find ourselves in the wilderness of life, which is all of us eventually, We want a God beyond it, but we get a God smack dab in the middle of it. So is God disappointing to us? My generation is the uh, American Idol generation. I hope we're known for more eventually, but right now it's just American Idol. And, um, you know, American Idol was the first show that I'm aware of that, and what made it really big was that You know, all of us young people could pick who we thought should win, the best singer, who should be the American Idol. We could do it from our homes, watching TV, on our devices. Those results were tallied live, and we got to pick the next American Idol. We got to vote for them. And um, I think that that show is really aptly named, the American Idol, and the fact that you get to choose. Because that's the thing about idols. Like, if you read your Old Testament, If you read ancient literature, what you find about civilizations, groups that had idols, is that they typically had several, right? You had choices. It's the thing about idols. You choose the ones you like. If they're disappointing you, you choose a different one. You get to vote. It's like American Idol all the time. As you think about that, can you understand why so few people actually voted for Jesus in his lifetime? 
And even those who voted for Jesus, many of them, when given the option to switch their vote to Barabbas, did so. It's because Jesus is born where? In a stable, you know, in the wilderness. His family, when he's born, they're not invited into Caesar's temple. Instead, they have to flee to Egypt under the cover of night, which is into the wilderness. The word about Jesus' ministry and arrival comes to John the Baptist, this man who has lived in the wilderness his whole life. It comes to him in the wilderness, and the only people who get to hear about it are the people who have come to the wilderness to hear him. Jesus himself comes to the wilderness to be baptized by John. Jesus spends much of his ministry withdrawing to quiet places to pray in the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He's arrested in a garden. He is crucified outside the city gate on a hill, as the author of Hebrews tells us, which is in the wilderness. And he is the great scapegoat. He takes all of our sins, and like all other scapegoats, he is sent into the wilderness with those sins, not into the throne room of God, not into the places of power, but off into the wilderness to die. That's Jesus Christ. Can you understand why people didn't vote for him? Right? It would seem like he is not doing so good with wilderness. You follow? So we're not the first to think that we should always have the right to choose. But I think that when it comes to faith, I mean, that may be the single greatest obstacle to our faith, modern day people, to our faith in God, that may be the single greatest obstacle, this idea that us sinful, frail, and very limited people should get to choose the character and choices of the Almighty God. Right? Uh, to that point, let me, make, let me make this clear. In this passage and in the whole of the Bible, the power of God is never actually in question, the power of God to deal with the wilderness. Uh, from creation, what we see is God holding back the wilderness. That's how the psalmist describe it, that there's this great chaos, and God comes, and he walls it off. He holds it back. Uh, we see that in Elijah in his altar. Remember, fire is sent down from the heavens and consumes the altar. We see it in the flood when God commands the waters. They rise, and they wipe out the sinful people of this earth. And we see it when Jesus breathes his last in the the. Darkness comes over the land, the rocks shake, the rocks shatter. Nearly every part of Scripture we see that God is, certainly has the power to have his way with wilderness. And what we're ultimately all longing for, what we are waiting for, is this promise of God, of this new heaven and new earth that will come. And in this new heaven and earth, there will be no more darkness or crying or pain or death. And John says the old order of things, and we might call it the wilderness, will have passed away. So that is our great hope that ultimately God will deal once and for all with Jesus, or sorry, with wilderness. But what Jesus shows us, what Jesus shows us is that it's not so much the, the power of God that's in question right now, day to day. It's the choices of God here and now that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. And I think what John the Baptist would tell us as he's standing there in the river in the wilderness doing all these baptisms, what he would say is, well, you don't get to choose. You don't come to God on your terms. The Lord Almighty comes to you on his. And where God often has something to say is not where it's safe. It's not where it's comfortable and secure. It's where it's wild. It's where life has gotten turned upside down. It's in those sun-bleached, weathered, rotting places of our lives, that God often has something to say to us. Uh, I got to go to Papua New Guinea maybe a year and a half ago or so, where we've got mission work, 
We support Jab and Becky Mesa and the Melanesian Bible College in Papua New Guinea. Jab and Becky are going to be here next week, so I hope you'll be looking for them. They're visiting us for a week. We were there visiting and learning some about the ministry work there at Melanesian Bible College. And one night we're at dinner with Jab and Becky there at the school, and a, a woman from Papua New Guinea walks in. I've never met her before. She doesn't speak English. And she sits down at the table with us, and she's, she's totally quiet. She whispers something to Jab, but then she just sits at the table, and she looks reverently at Larry McKenzie. Larry's a longtime minister at this church. He's been a minister here 50 years, and she just looks reverently at Larry McKenzie. About halfway through the meal, she's got food in front of her, but she's not touching it. She's just looking at Larry. And finally, she ta- taps Jab on the shoulder, and she whispers something to him, and he says, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell them. And she begins to talk to us in pidgin, and Jab translates. That's the language in Papua New Guinea. And Jab translates for her. And she looks at Mr. Larry, and she says, Mr. Larry, said, years ago, you came to visit Papua New Guinea. And when you came, I was in the hospital. In fact, I was almost dead. And you and Jab Mesa came to visit me. She said, that day, my son-in-law, who was a drunkard, abusive, in a fit of rage, took a machete, and he came after my daughter. And in Papua New Guinea, they, they live in really close quarters, so she's there. She said, I stood in between my son-in-law and my daughter to protect her, and my son-in-law brought that machete down onto me. He began to strike me with that machete. She was rushed to the hospital, and... When Jab and Larry walk in, her husband is pacing around the room. She said, Mr. Larry, as you know, in Papua New Guinea, revenge is very common. Revenge is very common. My husband is in a rage, and I'm begging him not to retaliate against our son-in-law. I'm begging him to, to forgive him, but I'm in and out of consciousness myself, and I don't know if I'm going to survive. She said, you and Jab walk in, and Jab Mesa comes, and he puts his hand on my hand, And then, Mr. Larry, you came and you put your hand on my husband's shoulder and you said, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Which is Romans 12, by the way. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. You put your hand down. And she said, it was like in that moment, this different spirit came into the room. And the spirit came into my husband. It came into me and it began to give me energy and life. She's got tears pouring down her cheek at this point. And she says, Mr. Larry, You saved our lives. I want you to know that we take our son-in-law clothes and food in prison every week now. And his heart has changed. He has this peace that's come on him. And our family has so much joy now. Mr. Larry, you saved our lives. And she got up from the table and she came to Mr. Larry and she embraced him and she's just weeping on his shoulder. Larry's patting her. So she walks out after the meal and Larry looks at Jimmy Atkins and I and he said, boys, I don't remember that at all. He said... He said, but it sounds like something I'd say. <laughs> and it does. <laughs> okay, God often, often has something to say in the wilderness. And maybe, you know, we talked about hearing God in a series a few weeks ago. Let me add this to that series and say that, you know, that maybe that is where God has most to say to us in the wilderness. Or maybe it's that it's in the wilderness where we are stripped bare of all of our comforts all the things we rely on day to day, all those people we place our trust in. And it's then when we're finally stripped bare and vulnerable that we can actually hear God best. You know, maybe that's why God prepares his servant, John the Baptist, by sending him into the wilderness for years and then sending his word about the coming Christ to him there in that place. As you look at this passage, I'll make one more point as we finish. 
Notice in this passage that John's message is not ultimately that Revelation's message about the new heaven and new earth where there will be no more crying or death or pain. His message is more immediate. It's more urgent. And this is what he says. He describes the coming of Jesus or the coming of the Messiah in these ancient words from Isaiah. And he describes what this Messiah will do. And it's not to obliterate wilderness or to eliminate it, but it is to make a way through it. It's to make a pathway where there seems to be no way. Look at these words. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. I'm reminded of that campfire song we used to sing growing up that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. Remember that? He works in ways we cannot see. God will make a way for me. And when God gives John the Baptist this word in the wilderness, that's really it. That Jesus is God's way of making a way. You know, we see this best of all probably in the death of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus who has the power to call 10,000 angels to stop his death, to stop his crucifixion, instead allows all of that chaos, all those forces, allows the wilderness to just take him. And it's in being taken by those powers in the wilderness that he enters into them and begins to make a way for us there. Now, that, that's really the message of the now versus the message of the eternal, which is such an important message. But the message of the now is not the end of wilderness once and for all. It's that Jesus is square in the middle of it, making a way for you where there seems to be no way. That's the message. And so here, here's the takeaway from this sermon. It's not like, hey, um, head into the wilderness. Go find God. Which, I mean, you could go camping. That'd probably be good. Like, that's great to do. But here's the thing. You don't have to go looking for wilderness. Wilderness is looking for you. Right? It is going to find its way into your life. And I guess the message is, when that's the case, when wilderness spills over into your world, it's not lost. It's not all over. In fact, God is probably square in the middle of it. Many of you have read that, that book, The Shack. Have you read that by William Young? It tells the story of this dad who has this unimaginable loss. He's taken deep into the woods to this old rundown shack where some terrible things happen. But it's there in this old shack that he has this powerful experience of God. That's the story. The details are irrelevant, but I can't help but think how true that is. That that is exactly the kind of place where you hear from God. And for all of us who feel like we are in that place as we enter this Christmas season, for all of us who will be in that place eventually, that place where wilderness is having its way, and what I want you to hear is that God will make a way for you there. And that God probably has a word for you there. So listen and wait.